Welcome to Design Ops Island Discs, the weekly podcast from Zero Height that navigates the calm waters of Design Ops with your host, me, Luke Murphy. I'm a design advocate at Zero Heights, and I'm talking to the best folks in Design Ops to navigate us through what it takes to float Design Ops within your design org. For episode three, I'm joined by Peter Meerholtz, designer, consultant, and author who's led design teams at Groupon, OpenTable, and Jawbone, amongst many others, as well as founding one of, in my opinion, the world's most important user experience consultancies, Adaptive Path, which was acquired by Capital One back in 2014. Peter co-authored the incredibly influential org design for design orgs, along with Kristen Skinner, and is even responsible for coining the term blog way back in 1999. Today, we talk to Peter about what goes into designing an effective design org and what's changed since the release of org design for design orgs five years ago. Let's set sail. So I suppose to start off with, um, as an intro, uh, so org design for design orgs is kind of a Bible to any any design leaders, design managers, anybody who's got an interest in how design orgs are put together across the world now. Um, what drove you and Kristen to actually write it in the first place? So Kristen and I worked together at Adaptive Path. Um, and so that, that's how we met and how we knew each other. Uh, I left Adaptive Path at the end of 2011 to become an in-house uh, design executive. She stayed at Adaptive Path and then in 2014 got uh, acquired when Adaptive Path got acquired by Capital One, she 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 was acquired with it. Um, so we we had this divergent paths where I uh, went in house to become a design leader, and as a, a design leader, particularly when I was leading the team at Groupon, so I was the VP of Global Design at Groupon, yeah. and uh, I took a team from twenty five to sixty in eighteen months, and Groupon organizationally was a mess. It had, it had, it had scaled, uh, the whole company had scaled super rapidly. Um, and design, when I came in, it was clear design needed to catch up. So, so I'm trying to figure out how do I structure this team, right? My responsibility as the VP is figuring out like, what are the roles? What are the levels? Who who do I bring in? How are we working with product and engineering trying to solve all that? And there were no resources around that. There, there was, there was, uh, some kind of prevailing notions of Groupon had a lot of ex Amazon people. So we had this two pizza team model with small teams that are, you know, meant to be complete, um, and, but, but there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of wisdom. And so I started just trying to figure it out on my own. I, I, I had some thoughts on how design best operates from working in adaptive path, but yeah. I knew that the solution isn't to turn your design, your in-house design team into an agency that never yeah. works. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's a known problem. But I also knew that the solution wasn't throwing designers onto product teams kind of willy nilly, <laughs> um, with no, with no real connection to one another, which is kind of that Amazon model. Yeah. And so I just started tinkering with kind of how it might work. And as I was figuring this out, I started talking about it because I speak at conferences and, and I would, I would be invited to speak and I'd say, well, what I want to talk about is the challenges I'm facing as a design executive. And people were like, okay, share that. So I was basically kind of thinking out loud in public around the challenges that I was facing, trying to organize my design teams and some of the solutions I was coming up with, some of the paths forward. Yeah. And 
um, I was getting a remarkable response to this. Um, not, I don't want to say that what I was saying was good or bad, but just that I was talking about it. Um, I was getting design leaders saying, no one else is talking about this. There are no resources for this. Where do you know of other resources? So I just got a lot of this kind of positive feedback just around paying attention to this problem. Yeah. Similarly, uh, uh, Kristen was was getting that as she had gone from working at a, Adaptive Path to, to going in-house and building out a program management practice at yeah. Capital One. When Capital One acquired Adaptive Path, they had no design operations uh, for their design team. Ah, and so, okay. so Kristen took the model that had started with Adaptive Path and figured out how to make that work for the whole design team at scale. Adaptive Path at the outset was kind of uh, uh, an internal service design consultant, um, whereas there were design, product designers who were just working on on various uh, uh, challenges throughout the organization. Um, and so she was thinking about building out this type of practice in-house. And so, you know, what was that? Four, four and a half years after we had kind of diverged on our paths uh, professionally, we realized that we were both in a mode where we had something to share that people were interested in hearing about. And she and I had maintained touch. Uh, we had helped program Adaptive Paths Managing Experience Conference. So, so we had we had stayed aligned. And we just, I think it was texts and emails, like, is now the time? Are we ready for this? And, <laughs> and we, she said yes. And I was getting, uh, I was in the process of getting laid off by Jawbone. Uh, uh, and so I knew I was getting severance. And so that was going to give me some time to get uh, some traction on writing. So we pulled together mm -hmm. uh, an outline. We talked to a couple of publishers. O'Reilly was interested. And, and we just went forward. So it was really, though, in response to this was 2014, there was tumbleweed rolling through the, the uh, conversation around how do you build and scale design organizations. There was just no resources. So that that was what we were responding to. I find it really interesting that design, whilst having, you know, design teams have been around for as long as any other team, yet they seem to have not reached the same level as maturity as, say, like engineering practices. And you mentioned um, the, the fact that, you know, when a lot of companies scale, design is often left behind. It's exactly the experience that I've had as well. I mean, do you have any theories as to why that actually is? What is it about design yeah. that means that we don't, I don't know, focus on process enough or team structure? Yeah. Or... yeah. So um, it's funny. I was just talking to an executive recruiter within one of the large VC firms here in Silicon mm. Valley who has started to hire, who is starting to um, place executive design leaders in these companies yeah. um, because even in 2021, the problem remains. Yeah. yeah, And, yeah, yeah. and I think the issue is two or threefold, at least when you look at it from the context of, of kind of more tech companies, startup companies, that kind of thing. Um, the, the first issue is the existing leadership often has no knowledge of design or design background. They come from an engineering background, maybe a business background. And while they might have worked with designers in the past, they've never really worked with design leaders. They don't really understand that role. And so, so the people who are bringing in design are just not aware of 
of the function and what it takes to do that well. So that's yeah. one part of it. Um, historically, uh, these companies could outsource design, right? So, I mean, Adaptive Path was in a consulting firm. When I got when I when I got into design, it was in a design consultancy. It was actually yeah. for the longest time uncommon for companies to insource big design organizations. What they would instead do is have a small number of of designers in house. Uh, whose much of whose responsibility was managing relationships with design firms mm -hmm. because design was not seen as a core competency. It was seen yeah. as um, a, a thing that you bought when you needed it. Um, yeah. And what's meaningfully changed over time is that design has um, emerged as this core competency, but it, that happened later in the game compared to engineering. Everyone knew they needed engineering. And yes, while you can outsource engineering, that, that felt a lot riskier because engineering is so close to the kind of core processes of an organization that you wanted to own that. Design, and particularly the common understanding of design, which is the make it pretty understanding, the, yeah. the, the, the presentation layer understanding wasn't seen as core. Um, and so it, it wasn't brought in house and then brought in house at scale, uh, until like a generation after engineering. And I literally mean like 20 years after yeah. that had happened for engineering. And so that's why I think design is just kind of behind, uh, is because of, of that, uh, that lag in really investing in internal design teams uh, did that didn't really start taking off probably until about uh, I, what I saw was around 2008, 2009. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's where like companies like Google really were starting to like ramp up, you know, working at adaptive path in Silicon Valley, we would find ourselves all of a sudden in competition not with other design firms, but companies like Google and Twitter <laughs> yeah. for design yeah. talent. That It was around 2008 that that became clear. And then it was around, I would say, 2012, 2013, about five years later, that it was like the, 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 the flip switched. And yeah. these companies were really starting to invest in, in building in-house design teams. And I suppose that's the thing is that's, that's, that then makes sense that, you know, another five years on top of that is when those concepts that were being built into the bigger tech companies and the, the ones that really attracted the top notch talent, that's actually starting to trickle down to the smaller companies. Right. And which makes sense that now sort of 2018, 2019 onwards, you've actually got the smaller startups actually tr starting to invest a lot more in their in-house design teams and starting to actually look at things like good org design and good, good design practice. Right. Um, well, and you and you see more and more of these startups realizing that a designer should be among their either founders or, you know, first yeah. first uh, a batch of employees. Um, yeah. So design is, is being recognized as a as a role that you want at the outset, at least of any startup that is going to be user facing. Right. It's not just some kind of pure technical play. So you wrote the book, you wrote Org Design for Design Orgs. And what is in here to me is like, it's the ideal org structure for a design team or like multiple options for the, the ideal structure. Um, and as we both know in the real world, that can be very different uh, when you go into a company. I suppose in your experience of sort of having been in a bunch of these different companies, what 
are there any big red flags that you look out for that folks should sort of keep an eye out for um, that would indicate that they really maybe need to have a look at how not only their design org is structured, but how their design org sits within the the wider company. Yeah, there's there's a few kind of conditions that ought to be in place to, to directly answer your question. The biggest one would be literally where is design situated? Yeah, let's say in an org chart. Mm. Um, uh, your senior most designer, your head of design, should be no more than two rungs from the CEO. Yeah. Right. So if you got a CEO, the person might have like a, a head of product reporting to them and then the head of design reporting to the head of product. Yeah. Something like that makes sense. Um, uh, anything lower uh, is a huge warning sign that design is not being taken seriously yeah. uh, in the company uh, as a as a function that has a real impact across the organization yeah so that's that's probably the 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 single biggest warning sign i would i would identify and i mean it's funny actually because i've been i've been talking a lot about this recently as well for sort of looking at smaller startups and how how your design org is is situated in in um sort of smaller companies especially ones that are sort of sub sort of 50 to 100 people and it's interesting because i think one of the warning signs that i've seen is along the same lines except that I feel like in an ideal scenario, the head of design should not be reporting into the head of products and should be equal to the head of product and ideally the same level as engineering as well. I, I let me let me uh so yes. And I think particularly at a smaller company, yeah. that should be true. Especially because at a smaller company, your head of design is probably responsible for product and marketing design. Yeah. It's weird at a at a sub hundred person company to have a head of marketing design and a head of product design because you've probably got four or five designers all told yeah, yeah um um and so when when that's happening then yes you should be a peer to market uh, product marketing engineering etc yeah what happens so when you scale is um it gets well it gets it gets uh <laughs> it, it gets nuanced uh, I'll, I'll say that <laughs> and um my, what I say, you know, when I say that two levels, that's no more than two levels. Yeah. It, what we're we're starting to see increasingly, heads of design reporting to CEOs. Yeah, I see that m- much more often at the smaller companies than than at a larger firm. Mm. Um, what often happens is a small company becomes a larger company. The head of design gets placed under one of the executives who reports yeah. to the CEO as it yep. scales, um, which can feel weird it's again i don't think necessarily a problem it's actually or at least it's not the biggest problem that a design org will face yeah um but one of the challenges this gets actually back to what we were talking about earlier with the maturation of design within these companies is that because we haven't had um design as a active um, robust in-house practice for very long, yeah. five to 10 years. We haven't built the, um, we, we haven't built up enough design leaders who are credible at that level of reporting to the CEO as true executives. Yeah. Design leaders don't understand what it means to be a true executive, to be someone reporting into the C-suite. We have a lot of folks who are comfortable, who are, we have more and more folks who are good at that secondary level. We have perilously few who are 
competent and qualified to be at that true senior level. Yeah. And that's just a matter of time. I think that's just something about that's a, that's going to require building ranks, uh, letting people uh, get their reps as they as they evolve in an organization to to where they will be ready to be seen as a true peer of a C-level, you know, a CTO or an SVP of engineering, a chief product officer, yeah. chief marketing officer. There's just very few designers who are credible in that conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that does that that does make sense. So the book is what, it's five years since it was published, right? I was just double checking to make sure. Uh, but I suppose that painful. Means, it's painful. Is it, so it's about six years since, since you wrote it, right? Um, let's see, we wrote it. Yeah, I guess so. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, I wrote it primarily 2015, beginning of 2016. Yeah. And I think it came out in uh, uh, August of 2016. Let me double check that. That's and so, right. I mean, yeah, came out in August of 2016. So, so we started writing it about a year ahead. Yeah. Of that. Yeah. And so I suppose that just predates sort of design ops becoming a sort of recognized <laughs> term around the place, isn't it? What, well, so the, the, the phrase design ops is nowhere in this book. Uh, this book literally <laughs> is, it feels like it's months before it. Yeah. We talk about design operations. Well, uh, I think we were yeah. probably the first book to recognize that design operations is a thing, but we did not at all. We didn't use the phrase design ops because there was no design ops. Um, We, in fact, uh, based on my um, colleague, right. We actually talked or based on my co-author, Kristen, we talked less about design operations than we do about design program management. Yeah. Because Kristen is Kristen's background is, is, is in program management. And then she had been speaking at the design management Institute uh, conferences and stuff. And, and she prefers this idea of design management, I think to design operations, you should invite her to your show and she can (laughs) tell you that I'm wrong, but, but, but prior conversations, she, she, she doesn't want to be seen as an operator, someone who's simply there to, um, because operations is often seen as kind of serving others, uh, 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 and doing kind of the, the fiddly, um, schedules and budgets and, and <laughs> calendaring and all this kind of stuff. And she prefers management to recognize that, desi- that, that this is a role that has some authority, some influence and real say it's not simply kind of uh, enacting other people's ah, desires. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Cause I suppose, cause for me, it's funny. Cause I was reading, when I was reading that book, um, having, you know, at the same time been, been reading a lot around design ops. And I'm like, this is, this is basically just a you know one part of a design ops handbook this this book um uh, because you know to me design program management design management as well so like in terms of actual sort of you know career management and line management um that all sits under the umbrella of of design ops for me um and I was just curious it, it does now yeah design ops has become the overarching word yeah. or concept that contains design program management, design people, people ops, people management, um, uh, learning and development. So practice development within a design organization, um, uh, design business operations kind of obviously. And so design ops has won uh, as the the (laughs) overarching term, whether or not my Kristen uh, appreciates that, uh, uh, you know, you, you, at some point you just have to kind of go with, with where the, the the conversation has 
has gone oh, 100%. and, and yeah. not try to fight it. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like continuing to try and call them animated GIFs. It's just not going to happen. It's, you know, you're not going to make GIF happen. <laughs> but um... uh, I hope not. I'm, I'm, I'm team hard G. I mean, I've been trying to make user experience stop happening uh, uh, as a way to talk about the kind of design I do. And uh, that's my um, quixotic uh efforts that's that's the windmill i tilt at is getting to pe getting people to talk about design teams not ux teams and so i suppose you know just through that lens of of especially with i feel like design ops has been a, as a concept so let's let's give it the label design ops i feel like it's almost been put on an accelerated path of maturation over the last sort of five or six yes. years because a lot more people yes. are talking about it so those ideas are flying around people are trying things out people are sharing a lot of what's happening is there anything that you'd go back and now add in to sort of support that or, or you know, reframe around how you'd do your org design or, you know, what a good design org looks like with that in mind? Specifically with design ops, yes. Um, you know, when we wrote it, we were thinking primarily around design program management. Yeah. And so that that function that is mostly about a design operations person who so, who works as a partner with a design leader. Yeah. So the, the way I tend to see it is you got, say, a design director. They have a team of 15 to 20 designers, including content and user research, et cetera, that they oversee. And then they have a, essentially, I'm, I'm wary of, uh, of chief of staff as a title because it leads a lot of confusion, but, but a kind of a chief of staff operations right-hand person mm. who helps them run this 20-person org. Yeah. So that the, the idea being the director can focus on the people leadership and the creative leadership. And this program manager focuses on the operational leadership because there's a lot of operational stuff yeah. that needs to be done for a team of 20. And if you don't have that program manager, then it's up to the design director to do that operational stuff. And then they don't have time for the people leadership and the creative yep. leadership. So, so that was the original kind of uh, thinking behind, as we described it in the book. What, what I think has changed or, or become clear is as design organizations evolve, as you have teams of 60, 100, 200, 500, um, the, the nature of design operations has changed to, to, to meet the different needs uh, of the greater scale. Yep. Um, and that's something we didn't really address in the book. So, you know, uh, when, when you cross the threshold of about 40 to 50 people, yep. you start needing a design operations person dedicated to people ops, yeah. particularly if you're continuing to grow and, uh, and, and recruit and hire, right? So you need a design operations person who helps with your recruiting practices, um, onboarding practices, employee experience, professional development, career ladders, just making sure all of that stuff is, is there. So that's a new role that we didn't address. Um, as you cross the roughly 100-person threshold, you then also start needing um, uh, Ellen, you, you, or you don't need, but you, you are warranted having design practice operations folks, so mm -hmm. people who are responsible for leadership and development within a design organization. Yeah. A friend of mine, this came clear to me when a friend of mine joined at Atlassian as they hit about 150 designers and all she, she her background was in design education. I mean, she'd been a design leader, yeah. but then more recently she was a design educator. She taught at General Assembly, 
that kind of thing. And they loved that. And they brought her on to say, hey, we have 150 designers. Instead of sending them out to conferences or having them go on lynda.com or whatever to learn their craft, we want to actually create kind of an internal design university yep. so that everyone is kind of learning from the same uh uh, the same practices from the same material so that we're aligned as an organization. And when you cross that 100, 150 designer threshold, you have an economy of scale where it actually makes sense to hire yeah. someone full time yeah. to drive that um, learning and development as opposed to continuing to outsource it um, to to conferences and, and, and the world. Um, so those are the kinds of things that have become clear that that scale matters. I guess the last one uh, that I would add is this chief of staff role. Yeah, and I'm seeing that happen more and more as as a team gets bigger, where you get um, a true design executive. You get a, these VPs and SVPs of design, who they need someone to help them in in uh, uh, realize their vision yeah. uh, for the design organization. That isn't simply just a, a more senior program manager. It's a different kind <laughs> of organizational operator yeah. at that point. Um, so if we were, and I, so Kristen is actually writing, I don't know what it's called. I think it's something like the design operations handbook. Yeah. She's working on a new book for Rosenfeld Media, um, where I'm assuming she's unpacking these kinds of things as we've all just seen. Because when we wrote the book, you know, the number of design organizations that had more than 100 people, uh, like digital product yeah. design organizations that had more than 100 people could probably be counted on two hands and two feet. Yeah. It, um, and now yeah. it's 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 hundreds, yeah. uh, literally hundreds of companies have organizations this large. And so now we just see the patterns that have emerged in order to support teams of that size ah it's interesting i suppose because the only other one uh, i'm curious actually to see to see if you've um you've heard of uh any place doing this but the only other area that i could think of at that scale that would probably start to benefit the team or potentially even a smaller scale is almost like a um operations focused r&d or tooling team that focuses on building out you know I, i'm thinking of something like creative technologists who or design technologists who focus on creating very bespoke solutions almost like as an internal product team um it's funny we attempt well we kind of accidentally fell into having that at, at one of my previous companies where we were nowhere near big enough to justify it um I think <laughs> we were at about 10 people 11 people but we just had somebody who happened to be uh, absolute wizard at both design and development so we were like might as well put them to work um and it fell right, apart right. very quickly because there just wasn't enough for them to do <laughs> um right yeah so um well and that starts tying into design systems which yeah. in some organizations is considered part of design operations yeah. and in other organizations is considered separate from design operations um but uh uh regardless yes you're right there becomes a point where you hit a certain scale where it makes sense to start uh being um intentional about the internal tooling for designers now when you're small you're going to leverage a lot of common frameworks yeah. and technologies like 
zero height or whatever, yeah. <laughs> um, because it doesn't make sense for you to build your own. Um, but as you scale, I mean, I, uh, when I was thinking of maybe getting a job job, um, <laughs> which I've since kind of overcome that, no, that don't do that particular, um, no, I've realized that that would be foolish. Um, but I talked to one company that, yeah, had 800 designers was a technical company. Mm. And so they had built whole suites of, of internal design tools, yeah. um, that were like design systems plus plus. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. were like these real, like they're leveraging APIs, uh, to, to hook into, I think this was kind of pre Figma. So, but to hook right into sketch and, and it was all very like, you know, you pull up sketch and it, and it real time is updating with whatever the systems are that you need access to and, you know, easier to prototype with like live code yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, but most teams don't need that yeah. and, and nor would it be a good use of internal resources to build that type of capability. Yeah. Yeah. But when you get to a certain scale, you have 800 designers, a thousand designers, then okay. Yeah. It starts it making makes sense. sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just, I'm just curious. Um, Cool. Okay, so now for the navel gazing uh, portion of this. Although I, d I do realize, to be honest, I could just sit here and talk to you probably for hours on end, uh, quite easily. Um, but we do have to wrap it up. So I'm just curious, where do you see, you know, the whole concept around um, uh, design orgs and design ops in general? Where are we going? What's exciting you at the moment for the future? Um, design orgs and design ops in general. Where is it going? Um... I guess the, the thing that I'm tracking kind of actively right now um, that is giving me a little bit of hope, uh, let me pull back to reframe it. There's a, there's a, there's a frustration within the world of um, in-house digital product design, particularly as it scales, that design has been in, in many organizations essentially reduced to a production function. Yeah. Um, and, and this is one of the uh, this is a byproduct of, of of agile transformations that have kind of atomized uh, product teams, and and you embed designers on these product teams, and those designers are just kind of turning to crank producing assets. And there's a lot of frustration around that. Yeah. Um, we've we've I've talked about it on on my podcast with with Jesse James Garrett. Um, there was a dialogue that happened a few months ago around the dream of user experience um, <laughs> and and some frustration around around what is user experience become you know in in uh, the uh, 2020s um, uh, compared to kind of the potential that we saw 20 years ago yeah. um, now while I respect and recognize some of that frustration that that design is being often used to uh, at uh, to deploy dark patterns mm. or that design is being reduced into these uh, production oriented roles. There are some, what I was, what I call green shoots emerging of, of a recognition for uh, that, that, that design needs to evolve. And one of those key green shoots is the um, seeing more and more companies hiring senior individual contributors yeah. in more uh, strategic and leadership design roles. Mm. Um, and so, uh, because what's happening is design. So we were talking about design directors earlier, right? Those people who with 18 to 20 folks on their team and the importance of having the program manager who helps them run their organization. Well, what's happening is, is at that level, 
that design director, even with a program manager who's helping them run that organization, still doesn't have enough capacity for the creative leadership that's that is ex- otherwise expected of yeah. them. You're running a team of 18 to 20. You, your priority is making sure those folks are are doing well, have what they need, um, being managed well, growing as uh, in their in their roles and in their careers. But then your priority is actually cross-functional. Mm-hmm. You're working with directors of product management, directors yeah. of engineering, figuring out where these teams that you're all leading are, are headed in terms of what you're delivering. And the problem is you don't have enough time to then, you, you don't have enough time to, to be in a lot of crits and reviews yeah. and feedback and, and um, uh, focusing on your team and helping them understand where to go. You're, you're absent. And so what's starting to what we're starting to see is more and more, let's say, principal designer type roles being hired that work as that um, creative lieutenant yep. for the design director, much like the program manager was this operations lieutenant for the design manager. Yeah. And you have this little kind of leadership triumvirate of the director, principal designer, and program manager who together now you you have enough time and capacity to do all the leadership that needs to be done yeah. that we used to locate in simply that one design director who was then getting overwhelmed. And so what I'm seeing is as companies are scaling, um, a recognition of, of bringing on um, principal designers, uh, sometimes the next level up are called design architects to ensure that design is appropriately engaged from a strategic and creative leadership perspective um, and not simply being reduced to turning a, a crank and producing assets. Yeah. I, um, uh, so that's, that's kind of over the next, uh, you know, 12 to, to 24 months, one of the, one of the happier trends that I'm witnessing. Yeah. I, I, oh, it's, I am 100% on board as somebody who, you know, only uh, had my first sort of lead design or, design leadership role in the last five years that was one of the first things that i noticed was it's like oh wow i really need support here especially on the craft side because the amount of time that i'm spending in meetings with you know the the heads of product the heads of engineering marketing all the rest of it i don't have time which is your job that is where you should be yeah we have come to time now but before we we go before we cast you off to your desert island uh we need to ask the all-important question um, so we're, we're sending you off to this imaginary design ops island um, and you get to take with you one piece of music, uh, one piece of literature and one luxury item for you to while away your days. So let's start with the piece of music. Uh, the piece of music would be Talking Heads Remain in Light. Oh, strong choice. Strong choice. I'm, 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 I'm nerdcore. So uh, <laughs> if I need something that will, that will, could be background yeah. and, and be with me, but also when it's foregrounded, I can engage with it and which I won't get too tired of over time i mean in talking heads it's it's classic it's there's enough there that you can really dive in and and experience over and over again and find new things i think it's a it's an inspired choice um and how about your piece of literature this has been tougher (laughs) yeah this one has been tougher um either 
it has to be long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And so, and so I'm, I'm grappling with a book that I have read that I think I, but it's been a long time that I think I would get out out of reading again, which is the brothers Karamazov by Ooh. Dostoevsky yep. or a book that I started reading and just kept getting distracted from. <laughs> and which I think would be, which I think would be, um, uh, uh, something I could I could read and read again and pour over, you know, uh, uh, which would be appropriate for a desert island experience, uh, which would be uh, Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Ah. Um, if I have to choose one, I would probably choose Moby Dick. Um, also, I'm on an island, and you know, it's about sailing and whales, so there's there's a, a thematic resonance. Yeah, I mean, them- a thematically appropriate book there, and it's it's funny actually because you know, obviously, I've been thinking about this myself. And what's the problem with a book that you haven't read before? What if you hate it halfway through? I I, I haven't. There's enough signs that point to 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 that I think I would actually enjoy <laughs> it. I just my challenge is it's a book that requires attention and focus yeah. in, in this modern world. It's hard to provide that. Yeah, yeah. I think the desert island should help there. And um and finally the luxury item that you'd take with you. <sighs> so originally I was thinking something like. You know, a Nintendo Switch, uh, <laughs> loaded with great games. You know, all the all you know, lots of SD cards and all that. Um, but then I was like, maybe what I want is like the highest end massage chair. Oh, you know, like one of those like two thousand dollar massage chairs yeah. that are like all the little buttons and can work all the little <laughs> bits in your body and um that because i think i would get a lot of repeat value mm. out of that um so i think that's where I, i'm going to go the, your your highest end massage chair i think that's an inspired choice it's, I mean... thank you so much to peter for joining us We'll uh, leave Peter while he settles back into his massage chair getting lost in Moby Dick. If you'd like to follow Peter, you can go to his website at petermerholtz.com. That's M-E-R-H-O-L-Z.com. Or follow him on Twitter at Peter Me. Peter will also be speaking at the upcoming Design at Scale conference by Rosenfeld, which is taking place from the 9th to the 11th of June. And it's online, so anyone can take part. I'm pretty sure there's still tickets left for that one, so make sure you jump on board. For the next episode, we set sail for the UK to talk to Amy Hoop, content designer and design systems expert on what it takes to build out a contribution model for your design system. Until then, bon voyage. Bon voyage.